are doing and what you continue to do in our lives. Father, thank you for this great opportunity to assemble ourselves together. Help us now, God, to supernaturally, would you remove all distractions from our minds so that we can be Christ-centered and Christ-focused and focus on you and your word alone. Speak to us, God, for we, your servants, are listening to hear a word from you. Help us today, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit to worship you in spirit and in truth. For it's in the marvelous name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. I invite you to turn with me once again to the book of Philippians. And I want to shine the sermonic spotlight on verse 27, which reads, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. I'm continuing on today in a series of sermons, preaching through the book of Philippians, and this sermon is entitled, A Christ-Honoring Church, Part 2. Last week, we preached uh, concerning A Christ-Honoring Church, Part 1. Today, this is Part 2. You remember from the introduction to Philippians that the Apostle Paul is writing from a Philippian jail. He's incarcerated. Now, one of the things you notice about Paul's writings is that he does not shy away from the issues that faced the church. The church of Philippi was a good church. It was a strong church. But Paul is writing in his absence from them, writing in the hopes that he can encourage them and help them remain the strong church that they are, in essence, remain the Christ-honoring church that they are. He wanted them to be a church that honored Jesus Christ in every aspect of life. He wanted them to honor Christ in the very, from the very totality of their being. He wanted their worship to be Christ-focused. He wanted their lives to be Christ-focused. He wanted all that they did and said to represent Jesus Christ. And so on last week, just by way of a little review, the first point Paul makes to the Philippian church concerning being a Christ-honoring church had to do with holy living. Verse 27, Paul wrote, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that a challenge? He said, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let all that you say to each other and to others, let all that you do represent Jesus Christ in the highest fashion. Paul says to the church at Caesarea Philippi, as well as the church throughout the ages, that Christians ought to live in such a way that the cross of Jesus Christ will be honored. First Peter 2 and 9 echoes Paul's sentiments. For Peter wrote, but you are a chosen generation. That God has chosen you 
to carry the light and to shine the light of Jesus Christ in a dark, dismal, and dying world. He says, you have been chosen. Good hope, you have been chosen. Every church that honors Jesus Christ has been chosen to carry the light of Jesus and shine it brightly in a dark, dim, and dismal world. How many of you know that the world in which we live is dark, it's it's dismal, it's a dying world? where people need to see the light. And Paul said to the Philippian church, he says to us through his writings that you are the light. Carry the light well. Let your light shine brightly. He says, not only are you a chosen people, but you are a royal priesthood. In the Old Testament times, people did not approach God directly. Instead, priests would act as a liaison or a mediator or a go-between God and sinful human beings. But with Christ's victory on Calvary's cross, that pattern changed. Now, every born-again believer in Jesus Christ can come directly into the presence of God without fear, so says Hebrews 4.16. So now all of us can come directly into the presence of God for ourselves. Not only that, it is now our responsibility, according to Paul, as born-again believers in Jesus Christ, not only come into Christ's presence for ourselves, but also to bring others to Jesus as well. You are a royal priesthood. You have the joy and the privilege of coming into the presence of God and bringing other people into the presence of God with you. And the word royal there means that, that you have power and you have authority. Royalty in Paul's day, kings and princesses and those who were in positions of power and, and a, had power and authority were called royal. Paul says now because of what Jesus did, you are royal. You have power. You have the responsibility to bring others to Jesus. So we are royal priesthood but Paul doesn't stop there he says you are a holy nation Peter rather doesn't stop there he says you are a holy nation being a holy nation means that we are distinct we are peculiar we are different from every other nation because of our devotion to Jesus Christ. You remember the example from last week when we talked about Raider Nation? In Raider Nation, people dressed like Raiders. They talked like Raiders. They acted like Raiders. But if you were of another team, you were not a part of the Raider Nation. When you went into Raider Stadium, you represented your team. 
That's how we are as Christians living in this world. We are in the world, but not of the world. We are to represent Jesus Christ in everything that we say and in everything that we do. And we are to record. We are to represent him at home, at church, in the school, on the job, in the marketplace, on the highway, everywhere we are. We are a holy nation. Good hope. Did you know that? You are a holy nation. You are different. People are to look at us as a church, and they are to say that those people are remarkably different. They live differently. They talk differently. They act differently. They must belong to God. Holy nation means we are distinct, we are different, we are peculiar from every other nation because of our devotion to Jesus Christ. And our devotion to Jesus Christ is a devotion that moves us into action, that motivates us to get off of the sideline, and that mobilizes us to get busy for God and, and, and to live in such a way as to honor every precious drop of blood Jesus shed for us on Calvary's cross to wash away the damage, the disgrace, the degradation, and the demise of sin. So we, as a devoted people, as a holy nation, uh, 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 we ought to have that devotion that, that motivates us and moves us and mobilizes us to live every day in a way that we represent well Every drop of blood Jesus shed for us. Have you ever thought about that? How is my life reflecting my appreciation for the drops of blood Jesus shed for me? Rhetorical question. How does my speech show Jesus that I appreciate his blood? I sing about it. I preach about it. But how does my attitude reflect that joyful appreciation? How does my behavior reflect? How does it tell the world that truly I am grateful for every drop of his precious blood? Jesus paid it all, said one hymn writer. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed me white as snow. And I and you and everyone who professes to be Christians ought to live like it. Peter continues, we are his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who brought you out of darkness into the marvelous light. Second, a Christ-honoring church stands firm in the faith. That, in the faith, that means that a Christ-honoring church does not vacillate does not oscillate like a fan, does, does not change, is not shifting like the sand on the seashore, but a Christ-honoring church stands firm. You can count on it. Paul was a marvelous example of standing firm in the faith. There he was in prison, mind you. Yet he continued being faithful to Jesus Christ. There he was being punished for something that he did not do. That that he no for no uh 
laws that he broke as far as Christ was concerned, yet he was being punished. There he was in a prison for promoting the gospel of Jesus Christ, for doing the right thing. Some would have given up saying, this Christian life is just too hard. Some would have thrown in a towel saying, this Christian life is not worth it. You know people like that. I know people like that start out in a blaze of fire, but fizzle out along the way, and they'll say it's just not worth it. Some would have moaned and groaned and grumbled and complained all the way through the process. I'm locked up for something I did not do. Some would have become bitter, angry, and resentful because of their condition. Some would have even blamed God with statements like, God, I've preached in your name. I've taught in your name name. I've lived in your name, and what do I get for my service? What do I get for following you? What do I get for coming to church? What do I get for paying my tithes? What do I get for living right? Some would have complained and blamed God, but not Paul. He remained steadfast unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that his labor in the Lord was not in vain. Don't you love it when people with credibility give counsel and encouragement? Oh, how exciting the Philippian church must have been to read Paul's letter because Paul had credibility. They knew what he was going through. Oh, how they must have been encouraged saying, if Paul can stand fast like that, we ought to stand fast like that. If Paul can still love Jesus with all that he's going through, all that he's been through, and here we are with our freedom, how much more should we stand firm in the faith? So it was with Paul, the Philippian church, Loved it because Paul was not sitting back in some Roman penthouse writing words of encouragement. No, no, Paul was in prison writing words of encouragement. Look again at verse 27. Paul wrote, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your fast. Get this, that your steadfast... That means stand, that you are steadfast. That means standing firm in one spirit. That means everybody's operating under the influence of God's Holy Spirit. Members living in a living spirit-controlled lives. That's what he's talking about. With one mind, what he's saying, that everybody has the mind of Christ. Everybody is Christocentric. Everybody is Christ-focused. Striving, he says, Meaning struggling, giving their best efforts together for what? The sake of the gospel. Why do we do what we do? It's the sake of the gospel. Why do we preach the way we preach? It's the sake of the gospel. Why do we sacrifice and come to Bible studies? It's the sake of the gospel. 
And I'm always touched and moved when I come out here on Wednesday night. And, and, and sometimes people who have worked all day and have driven miles just to get here to go to Bible study and, and prayer meeting and Bible study. And oftentimes they are here before Sister Pickett and I arrive. And in my heart, I'm thanking God. That's what you call steadfast. That's what you call striving together. For the sake of the gospel, Paul had a passionate desire to see the church working together with each other in every facet of ministry instead of working against each other. He had a desire to see them working together with each other instead of them fighting against each other. Listen carefully as he expresses his passionate desire to see the church working together. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you speak the same thing. In other words, don't have a contradictory message to the world. Be on the same sheet of music. Speak the same thing. And that there, get this, be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. 1 Corinthians 1 and 10. Feel his passion for this thing of togetherness, this steadfastness. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition, conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, which, by the way, is the trademark of the world. Everybody is looking out for their own interests. Everybody is pushing and serving and trying to get ahead. Makes no difference who you step on, step over. Paul says, don't be like that. Let each of you in the church, let each of you who name the name of Jesus Christ, look out not only for his own interests, but for the interests of others. Be concerned for the poor. Be concerned for the needy. Be concerned for the downtrodden. Be concerned for the brokenhearted. Be concerned for those who have tried and failed in their trying. Be concerned for those that the world has even deemed not worthy. Look out for the interests of peoples whose lives have been broken, people whose dreams have been shattered. Look out for the interests of people who have been hurt, rejected, dejected, disappointed. So says Philippians 2.4. Paul was absolutely right in this passionate pursuit to help the church work together as a united team against the diabolical against the damaging, against the destructive devices of God's enemy and the enemy of the church who is the devil. Paul was right in his passionate pursuit to help the church be unified against the real enemy, the devil. Paul was right to help the church not look at each other, not turn inwardly and fight among themselves, but to keep their focus on the real enemy, 
the enemy of our souls, the devil. Therefore, Paul wrote to the church, stand firm together. Paul says, stick close together. Be a steadfast team. Present a unified front against every darkness that rises up against you in the battle for that which is right. Paul in Ephesians 4, 3 says, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Paul says you got to work at it. Paul says that it doesn't come natural. It doesn't come natural. We're individuals. We have our own personalities. We, We have our own desires. But Paul says work at it. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now, on the flip side, most of us know what happens when a team stops working together. Stops functioning as a unit. Some of you have been on dysfunctional teams. It's not a good place to be. Some of you know what happens when a team stops working together and fails to promote a common vision. We have witnessed what happens when team members allow individual interests and agendas to overshadow and even replace the interests and the priorities of the team's agenda. Those of us who are not novice in the faith and, and, and haven't been in the battle for more than one or two seasons of our, of our lives are painfully aware of the damage caused by team members criticizing one another both privately and publicly. We've observed what happens to teams, to teams' moral, uh, morality when team members make excuses for their sinful lifestyle. And then turn around and blame others when their lives are shipwrecked because of their own rebellious behavior. Some of us have watched in dismay as teams disintegrated on the field or on the court. As team members argued and fought against each other and even the coach. The words of Paul still rolls down the corridors of time, reminding the people of God living in a sin-cursed, sin-torn world that the church that Jesus suffered and bled and died for must stand fast and strive together, united for the sake of the gospel. Not about Paul, but for the sake of the gospel. Notice Paul didn't say stand firm for my sake, but for the sake of the gospel, not the pastor's sake, not the deacon's sake, not the church leader's sake, not for your sake and my sake should we stand firm. We should stand firm for the sake of the gospel. It's all about the gospel. Third, a Christ-honoring church is a courageous church. The Philippian church family did not live on a private island, an exclusive island, aloof from the many concerns and troubles of society. They lived in Caesarea Philippi. They worshiped and they worked there amid a rigid Roman world government 
that practiced thumbs down leadership. It was tough. Yet Paul wrote to them and encouraged them not to cower down or cope out in the face of intense pressure or opposition, but rather they were to stand courageously in a society and in a world that dismissed the teachings of Jesus and hated his followers with a passion. Notice in verse 28, Paul wrote, and not in any way be terrified, terrified by your adversaries. Which to them is proof of perdition, that word means proof of their destruction, their ruin, their loss, their eternal loss if they don't come to know Jesus. But it's proof of your salvation. And that comes from God. Now, as I close, let's keep it real. Being a Christian in a corrupt world is difficult. In fact, in fact, it's a lot more difficult today than it was when I was growing up in Columbia, South Carolina, when there was a great respect for the church and, and, and a great respect for, for Christianity. And when, and when ballparks and stores were, were closed in honor of the Lord's Day and when people did not schedule activities that conflicted. In fact, I remember basically the only store that was open in my city on Christmas, uh, on, on Sunday, on the Lord's Day, was Taylor Street Pharmacy. And for them, it was a ministry. People were sick. They needed medicines. People came from the hospital. They needed prescriptions. Phil, Taylor Street Pharmacy was open. But Rose's Five and Dime was closed. Mr. Balama's grocery store, Bachelor's grocery store were closed. Little League games were not scheduled on the Lord's day all in respect you know, being a christian in a corrupt world is difficult because it's not that way anymore in fact not only when i was a boy but it has shifted and it has changed tremendously just in the last 20 years 10 years 5 years in fact it has it continues to shift People oppose our stand for Jesus Christ. And people now resent righteous living with a passion. In fact, everywhere you turn, you turn the television on, it's full of unrighteousness. Surf the internet, even when you're not looking for it, it's full of unrighteousness. People trying to get ahead in a worldly system on jobs, practicing all kind of immoral, unethical, and even illegal decisions. It's difficult. The difficulty may be next door with a neighbor. It may be in the office with a co-worker who resents your stance of righteousness, who resents you because you want to do the right thing, because you go against the flow, and everybody else says, but this makes us look good, and there you are as the lone standard saying, but this is not right. It's not always easy. 
people hate you just because of who you are, hate you because of your stance, hate you because you are a Christian. It can happen in the school where students are ridiculed for their stance, where peer pressure says, come on and take a drink, come on, take a smoke, come on and do immoral things with your body. But that child says, no, I can't do it. I wasn't raised that way. My mama didn't teach me that way. My daddy didn't teach me that way. My grandparents don't teach me that way. Teach me that way. The church that I attend does not teach me that way. And so they are oftentimes hated and ostracized and pushed aside. It's difficult in a hundred other places. The difficulty in living for Jesus is expressed in numerous ways. Sometimes Christians are avoided. Sometimes Christians are ridiculed. Sometimes Christians are isolated. Sometimes Christians are ignored and overlooked. Sometimes Christians are cursed, uh, abused, mistreated, and slandered, and even killed. Oh, yes, even killed such as the case in Emmanuel A.M.E. Church in South Carolina. I'm trying to tell you, it's real. But notice Paul's exhortation. Paul says, we are not to be terrified by our adversaries. We are not to be turned away by our adversaries. We are not to be dissuaded by our adversaries. Paul says we're not to be terrified by our adversary because persecution is a sign of their doom. But a sign of our salvation. Persecution means that you're on the right track. In your office, you're on the right track. In school, you're on the right track. In the neighborhood, persecution means that you're on the right track. You're on the right team. You're on the right side. You're moving in the right direction. So as we stand courageously in the days, the months, the weeks, and the years ahead, may the words of 1 Peter 4, 12, and 13 comfort us as a unified church family. Peter wrote to the church of his age who, like the church of our age, faces challenges and difficult days ahead. Peter wrote, Beloved, do not think it strange. Say, don't think that it's unusual, it's bizarre. Don't think that what you're going through is abnormal concerning the fiery trials, which is to try you. And as though some some strange thing was happening to you. But Peter says, but rejoice. Celebrate. Cheer. Be pleased about it. To the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Peter said, celebrate the persecution. Thank God for the persecution. Thank God that you belong to him and he belongs to you. That's all persecution means. So good hope in the days to come. May by the power of God's Holy Spirit moving in and through us, may we continue being a Christ-honoring church. 
And, and if you should run across somebody who has forgotten this, just kindly remind them that we are a Christ-honoring church. Maybe they are upset. Maybe they are bitter. Maybe they are disappointed. But remind them that we, according to the Bible, are a Christ-honoring church. As you run into people who don't have a church home, remind them, come and go with me to my father's house. We are a Christ-honoring church.